0: So maybe we can transition from this to another dead parent who is textually present
1: mm-hmm. in
0: 205, which is Jake. Yes. So we talked about how much more Wells is present in 104 than we had initially remembered. And and even like, we get a couple more Wells mentions in 105, I think. So, you know, Clark talks about all the people who they've lost and she names Wells. As- Jaha and the chessboard. Yeah, Jaha and the chessboard. Yeah, like so. so Wells is still very, very... In a kind of subtle way, like nobody's stopping everything and being like, let's sit down and talk about Wells. But there's these little moments where we are reminded as an audience that the people who loved Wells still remember him and that they're still sort of being motivated by him. So like the shot of Jaha looking at the chessboard when he's thinking about dying in The Calling, I think... You know, it's supposed to be telling us something about his motivation, which is that it's not just his, like, weird, misguided sense of duty, but also maybe he's still struggling with his grief for his son. And part of what he feels like he has to atone for is the fact that he made the decision to send those kids down and his son died. So Wells is there, but Jake absolutely is as well. And I know you always want to talk about Jake. Always, always. So 105 is an episode where Jake is, like, just... You know he's gone, but he is like so, so
1: present and so important to what happens in that episode. One o five is one of my I think my favorite episodes of the whole show.
0: oh, absolutely. the calling is calling is probably the best thing they have ever done.
1: Every facet of the calling storyline is, I think executed near flawlessly from how early they set up the stakes, you know, the beginning of the show. And how over the course of five episodes, you watch all of the potential ways to avoid this disappear one by one until it seems like there is nothing left that could possibly prevent this thing from happening. And You see Abby, you know, trying to talk Kane out of it. You see her trying to talk Jaha out of it. You see her saying like, okay, we can force an algae bloom. We can put people into coma, like throwing out as many options as possible. And then the last thing that she possibly has to try is that she does a complete about face from what we see of her in the flashback in 203 where she was aggressively fighting against Jake getting his message out telling people what he had found spreading this panic and he got floated for almost doing it and she knows that if she does it for real she's risking herself getting floated but it's the last card in her hand so not just that we get to see his message so we get to see like who he is you know and the way that he just so deeply believes in his heart of hearts that the arc could come together and that this could bring out the best in them bring out their best selves like that hopefulness that he has that if everyone has this information together we can come up with a solution So what it means about Abby and the transformation that she's gone through by this point in the story, that she chooses to break into the arc-wide communications, broadcast that message, and then her own, and tell people, I think we forget that the majority of the ARC didn't know why Jake Griffin died, because that was all classified. You know, and so saying like, here's the information that he had, he was killed to keep this quiet, but her own life is now less important than we have to do something. You have to know this was gonna happen. The moment where we cut back and forth, and it's just shot so beautifully. Between Abby barricaded in that room trying to get this message out, and Kane and the guards running down the hall, like that's sort of like the kind of race against time. I mean it's it's like in the previous episode where we're watching her and Raven trying to finish the dropship before Kane comes for her. But I think that just the way that the way that it shows us how differently in the lapse of this past year and with everything that's happened that she's come to think about the message that Jake was trying to send like not just to the people but to her like what kind of person do you want to be you know and i think in some ways she's come to realize that the kind of person that you are is as important as survival are we worthy of survival are we good people are we making the right choices is the society that we're building the right kind of society you know and i think that her gambling that Jake's way will work. And then the absolutely heart-wrenching way in which we see that it does work. It's just gut-wrenching because it forces you to ask if Jaha and Abby and the council had listened to Jake a year ago, what could possibly have been impacted or prevented? If they had released that information... If Jake had maybe not died, maybe they would have found a solution with everybody working together. Maybe they would have had people volunteer to save themselves more oxygen. There's no way to know. But you catch the other characters wondering. I think both for what we see of how Abby's view of Jake has shifted, and also in, I think, the really profound way that we see the culling and Jake turning out to have been right impact Jaha and Kane. for all three of them, their relationship with each other, that kind of leadership trifecta, I think Jake's and his message are transformative in this episode. I think the moment where they realize that Jake was right about their people, when everyone comes in one by one to volunteer for Section 17, the look on Kane and Jaha's faces and the way Jaha says Jake was right, that it would bring out the best in all of us. I think it triggers something in all three of them in ways that are permanent and lasting. And I think it's another way that the ghost of Jake Griffin remains so present in this show, like at all times, but really, really pointedly here. He
0: kind of becomes
1: a guardian angel. He's gone, but yeah, he still
0: manages to come in and kind of rescue everyone from themselves. And I think maybe even for Abby, you know, I think obviously Cain and Jaha more prominently have this sort of realization, like, oh God, what if we had done this a year ago? But I think, you know, even possibly Abby, because, because this was a kind of like last second desperation Hail Mary move. You know, even for her, there's a sort of moment of, you know, it works in a way that she did not expect. And so they're all just humbled by the response of these people that, you know, like everything that has happened has been premised on the fact that they did not trust these people. They did not trust their people to react in, you know, in a constructive or even like just not react in a destructive
1: way. And then their lack of faith is proven to be so unfounded. I think that's sort of the beginning of a kind of recurring thread that comes up a lot in Kane and Abby's relationship, where his instinct to believe the worst is about to happen is continually challenged by her coming at things from the opposite perspective. Like he's absolutely convinced that the people outside that council chamber are there to riot, and he is stunned when they're not. It never occurred to him, I think at all, that there was a response to this that wasn't the worst case possible scenario. Yeah. He kind of comes at it from
0: like, what's the worst possible thing that could happen and how do I prevent it?
1: Whereas Abby comes at it from like, what's
0: the best possible outcome and how can I get there? And this is where they sort of collide. But yeah, I mean, that whole arc sequence in 105 of... Every step leading up to the calling, and the way they get to the place where people are volunteering and then the way that that's presented, the amount of time and attention that the show gives to those people that we're losing, you know, and they set up that one father character to give us a person that we like and uh, and no to i to sort of like represent all those people who volunteered so we have like someone to kind of latch onto. but i mean even beyond him it's such a relatively lengthy sequence watching all of those people file into the room you know getting shots of them saying goodbye to their loved ones seeing their reactions as the doors close you know seeing them hold each other They do just such a good job of like showing every single step of the way how they wound up there, showing the stakes of the decisions being made, but then also really like lingering with the emotional stakes or the emotional sort of repercussions of what's happening, not just for our main characters, but also the kind of like emotionally what's going on for the people who have volunteered. Yeah. They're, They're anonymous, you know, like we don't know any of those characters. They don't exist except to die. And yet they're still kind of they're afforded a dignity, you know, they're afforded like importance and reverence in their deaths. And I think that's just like so beautiful the way that they do that. they all these kind of like red shirts who are made not red shirts, but like people that you have a real sort of feeling like, you know, watching that scene. You feel like those are real people that you're going to watch die, you know, like their
1: deaths just have so much weight and meaning. The camera work. Does so much, both in this scene where they file in to hand over their neck badge things, you know, to volunteer, and then also as we watch them sort of filing in and the death sequence, and then the aftermath with Jackson kneeling down and closing people's eyes. Like the camera really lingers in ways that are very intimate and humanizing. We get long shots on people's faces. And they do a really nice, subtle job of showing us what a diverse group it is. You know, some people are alone and some people are in pairs or families. They're a range of different ages. And then they have lots of different reactions. You know, like some people are calm and some people are crying. In such a short space of time, they're complete people. You know, we don't know who they are. Like you said, their names are their lives, but they are so human to us. And what really ramps up the emotional kind of connection, how close you feel to these people and how desperately you want them to not die, is that it sort of laid side by side with this desperate race on the ground that we'll come back to in a second to build the rockets to sort of to get the Ark's attention after Bellamy destroys Raven's radio. And so for me, and I don't know if it was like this for you the first time you watched it, but for me, the first time I watched that, I was absolutely convinced that they were going to get there in time. hmm Like, you know, we're getting all of this buildup and it's going to be so sad, you know, and then like at the 11th hour, as everyone's like starting to drift off from oxygen deprivation, but before they're really dead, someone's going to say like, we saw the rockets, the kids are alive. Jackson's going to come over the radio and be like, they're alive, they're alive, we saw rockets, they're alive. And so I think part of why that sequence is so heartbreaking is as you watch them get closer and closer and closer to the moment of realization that they're not going to be in time, you know, and you feel the same sense of helplessness that Abby must feel, that these characters must feel, you know, Abby has done everything that she could possibly do to prevent this thing from happening, and it has arrived and she cannot prevent it. She's made it not... Murder, You know, like she's changed the way it's framed and she's changed the council's moral relationship to those 320 deaths, but she hasn't been able to stop it. And the moment where you realize that Clark and Raven also are not able to stop it it's just devastating because you want there to be an evac and there isn't one. It's like no one's coming for these people. No one's going to get there in time. This dad sitting there in the corner with his daughter's barrette who has volunteered himself to die in the hopes that the tiny little bit of extra oxygen that his death will provide might make enough of a difference to help his child who is sick. And then watching the camera linger on him playing with the barrette, watching the barrette fall out of his hand, watching Abby picking it up and looking at it later. You feel the walls closing in, you know, like this is a good person and he deserves to live and there's got to be a way. Like this fundamental tragedy of like everybody means well. Everyone's trying to do the best they can. Like none of these are bad people. Everyone's trying to save someone else. You know, Bellamy only threw away the radio. Because he was like, if I get shot when the arc comes down, what the hell happens to Octavia? Right. And Kane is only fighting to secretly have 320 people like gassed in their sleep. Because he's like, if we don't have CO2 scrubbers, we're all dead in three months. This is a like epic, unpredictable, unfixable, catastrophic malfunction for which all of humanity will die if we don't fix this. And Abby releasing Jake's message is like, I'm out of ideas. Maybe somebody else out there has an idea. Maybe if we all put our heads together, we'll come up with something. Like everyone's trying to do the right best thing and nobody gets there in time. And it's just awful. It's so awful. Yeah. And I I think part of why it's so awful is you sort of wonder, like, in hindsight, you think the kind of people who would turn themselves over voluntarily to die to save oxygen, to save everybody else, are really the kind of people whose votes they could have used when Pike shows up in season three. (laughs) That is so true. And suddenly everyone is driven by fear and xenophobia. And it's like, you know who would be helpful? 320 voting citizens who are like forward thinking and progressive enough that they were willing to die to save everybody else. It's like, that's the voting majority of Arcadia, I bet. It's like, sure would be nice to have Barrett Dad like leading all the- Yeah, right. He totally would be like, the answer is in guns. <laughs> yeah. Barrett Dad is not a Pike supporter. The unspoken tragedy of the culling, or I guess one of the many, is that the people that they have lost are exactly the kind of people that they need the most.
0: Those are the best people. You need the
1: like the best, yeah. most responsible, most like community oriented, good, loving parents. Exactly, yeah. Which isn't to say that it was the wrong choice, but the, the trade off for just arbitrarily doing it by arc geography, just picking a section that has the right amount of people in it, and then just quietly faking a, you know, equipment malfunction and blaming it on that, which Abby finds unconscionable because, you know, because that's murder, that's premeditated, that's an objectively wrong thing if you were Abby Griffin. And most people. Yeah. We're not advocating just like randomly no, no, no. killing people. Exactly. <laughs> to be clear, this podcast is anti mass <laughs> murder. But that inherent in people self selecting for Section 17 is that the people that you are losing are the kind of people who were willing to make that sacrifice. Right. Yeah, at least the other way, it was random. Yeah, like there probably were a couple of assholes thrown in there. <laughs> and they don't really address that. But it is something I think is sort of impossible to ignore. You know, like among the many things that make the culling so devastating are that everyone in that room who died was a good person in a way that you can't say about any of the other sort of mass deaths that are more random, where it's like, there's no way to know. Right,
0: right, 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 right. But all
1: of these people did a noble, self-sacrificial thing and losing 320 of the kind of people who would do something like that, like it fundamentally changes the fabric of your society. And I don't think that that's something that is ever sort of addressed literally, but it is something that makes it sad in an additional way. I think a lot about what would the world look like in seasons two and three if those people had all come to Earth. And then we also get, I think, for Cain particularly, but also I think in a way for Jaha, the tragedy of realizing that you are the kind of person who always assumes the worst of people. What that says about their comprehension of themselves, which gets into our recurring segment of why is Jaha the worst in this episode. <laughs> I have very strong feelings, and I have met it on this many, many times. Kane and Jaha's scenes in episode five are among my favorite of anything that happens in the whole arc storyline in all of season one because of the way that this episode gives so much nuance to this specific nature of their relationship. You know, in the pilot, Jaha is framed as benevolent, but is really kind of capricious. (laughs) But that he's a chancellor and Cain is his second. And Cain is sort of laid out in this way as stereotypical power grasping second in command. He's like the Jafar of the arc out for power, wants to rise from second place to first place, and his antagonism towards Abby is because she checks his power. Like, that's kind of the initial sketch of Kane that we see. Over the previous episodes, we see that deepened in shaded. I think, a little bit. But I really love the kind of recurring headbutting over the idea of Jaha insisting on going down to Section 17, and that what that brings up And Kane's panic about wanting to fight so hard to keep that from happening is that it tells you, first of all, that as much as Kane may want power or may want to be chancellor, Kane does not want to be chancellor enough to watch Jaha die. So, like, this is our first inkling that Kane didn't do it. Kane is not the person who hired Bellamy. Otherwise, he'd be like, oh,
0: yeah. That's a very noble thing you're going to do. Why don't you go do that? Yeah, you're right.
1: Godspeed. Yeah, right. But he's like, no, like, you can't. You're the lead, like, like that. you see that his loyalty to the law and to, you know, his role as a counselor is driven not just by his really rigid adherence to the Exodus Charter, but by a really deep personal loyalty to Jaha, who he sees... I I don't agree, but you know, like bless Kane's heart, that he sees Jaha as, <laughs> as being this inspiring, charismatic leader that the people need, and that what he's saying is, your death does nothing for these people, especially then when they have enough volunteers, when they don't actually need Jaha's oxygen because they were turning people away, and Jaha still is like, yeah, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna go do it. Kane is saying they need you, you are their chancellor, your death does nothing, but your life, you know, staying to continue to lead these people and inspire them is so vital. His argument for Jaha not doing it is you are the chancellor that our people need. And then Jaha kind of frames it as like, no, I'm not the chancellor that our people need, you are. And the reason that he gives, and I just, this line drives me crazy. (laughs) <laughs> and i don't know if it's retconned later or if what it's trying to do is show us how poorly jaha understands kane but i'm like obsessed i'm like like literally obsessed with the line where jaha tells kane you have a strength that is not weakened by sentiment because it is so spectacularly inaccurate <laughs> to the kane that we see in like like particularly like ladder house season two all through season three like the cane who is, like, chained up in Matt Weather, screaming about, like, no, take my bone marrow, like, don't hurt my wife. Or the cane who is... Emotionally devastated by worry over Octavia when she's out sleuthing against Pike. Or even the Kane who is absolutely devastated to the point of being broken by the calling. Yeah, like two episodes later we see him like yeah. and Jaha's advice is like, man, like sober up and get your shit together. Like suck it up! Which makes you really like it gives us uncomfortable feeling of like, was
0: Kane the way he was because that's Kane, or is Kane the way he was in this first half of the season? Because of, like, so weird Svengali shit with yeah. Jaha. No where, way. like, Jaha kept telling... Yes. You know what's great about you, Marcus? You don't have feelings. Right, and right. And Marcus right. was like... Oh yeah, okay, well fuck. Well, I better like start suppressing those feelings then, you know, since apparently they're unacceptable. No, I know.
1: Because because here's because here's what happens in like two or three episodes from now. When we see Kane like break down in front of the Eden tree, and Jaha comes in and he's like sober up and like stop crying, you wimp. What we see of Jaha, and not just in the moment, but like I would argue you could extend this all the way through to like City of Light, Jaha. Jaha always looking to dodge culpability for his actions or hiding from pain or heightened emotions of any kind. Like Jaha has no capability or no like capacity for coping with painful or difficult emotions. Like zero. Right. So we're seeing Jaha's priorities, like Jaha's values are having strength, untainted by sentiment while he's like wallowing in his grief over wells and
0: his guilt over the calling to the point where he's like like this is this is all like this is why jaha is the worst you know so like the whole sort of like i'm going to die with them thing is framed as, as being this noble sacrifice but it's fucking not you know like you are the fucking chancellor It is your job to make these decisions. Like, you don't get to have the luxury of being like, this one is just like, I don't want to deal with these feelings Mm -hmm. or like Mm -hmm. feeling shitty about this. So I'm just going to die instead. And that way I'm a hero. Right. You know, like, fuck that, man. Like, that is him dodging responsibility for the calling, dodging dealing with his guilt for it and confronting it or atoning for what he's done by sticking around dying the slow painful death with his people and like trying to make their lives as good as they can be before the end because he has the power to do that because he's the chancellor like this goes right along with jaha kind of like buying directly into the uh alley thing eventually because like what he's been trying to do from the beginning every time he's faced with some deep insurmountable negative feeling of whatever kind he's like ah fuck how do
1: i get out of this one yeah exactly exactly how do i avoid feeling this thing I have long maintained that an underrated moment, like when we talk about, you know, Kane's three season character development arc, which is so nuanced and beautiful and so well done. I think one of the moments that we don't talk about enough as being really key and decisive in kind of making that evolution permanent is when Jaha leaves camp in season two to go off on his like spirit quest (laughs) and sort of fully abandons his people. I think in a way what that does is sort of make permanent something that was kind of beginning to happen really now already. Which is like, it replaces Jaha with Abby as sort of the primary influence on Kane of what a good leader is.
0: Which draws some interesting parallels to Bellamy. Yeah, oh yeah.
1: Who is also kind of like always deeply unsure
0: of himself and his decision making as a leader. And always looking to another model, you know, either Clark or then when Clark is gone, Kane, and then Pike.
1: For me, I think you know, and we'll and we'll get into this more. I think in the next podcast where we really unpack the culling aftermath. But I think one of the things that I really that I really love about the culling storyline and the and particularly the way the fallout of it is handled is it's the first moment where the show begins to parallel Kane and Bellamy as people. Like we've seen up until this point, they're paralleled kind of structurally and narratively as like they're both. Pains in the ass of the Griffin ladies, <laughs> <laughs> but they're not shown to us as being remotely similar as people. But I think that the way that we watch Bellamy's guilt about the radio and Kane's guilt about giving the order—that we see them both take disproportionate emotional ownership of those three hundred and twenty lives—and the way the guilt for what they did haunts them in some ways that are parallel—I think really deftly and have lasting consequences. This is the first thing that happens to them both in a way that draws a line between not just like, you know, there's two Griffin ladies and they each have an annoying dude. <laughs> <laughs> but that both Kane and Bellamy, like the thing that drives them both as people is preserving lives. For Bellamy, the beginning, it's just Octavia's. And for Kane's at the beginning, it's everyone in this kind of faceless sense And they sort of meet in the middle, I think, in a way, like Bellamy's view expands and Kane's view becomes more personal. But neither of them are people for whom killing is acceptable unless it is an act of absolute desperation to save whoever is the person or group of people that your entire life's work is about protecting. So they feel those deaths on their conscience in a way that we don't see Jaha ever do. And when he does feel it, he wants to get away from it. Immediately, yeah. I'm just fascinated by the dynamics that we see unfolding between Jaha and Kane. And particularly, and I will say, I think the thing that really saves me from feeling like the narrative is excusing Jaha from culpability is that Abby just lets him have it. Like Abby yes, says so to, his, to his fucking face, like you are <laughs> running away. You are a coward. This is not being a leader. This is not being a chancellor. She tells him like, you are taking the easy way out. Like I fucking see you, Thelonious. Yes,
0: I know. I'm, I'm on your she ass. I was like, thank you, Abby. Bless you. Praise. I'm so glad somebody came out oh my and said God. it. Yes. Because that is what it is. Yeah. And it's self-aggrandizing, you know? And it's yeah. kind of like,
1: he's taking it the easy way, but it's like, I am a martyr for my people. It's like bullshit. And it gets to my favorite Aaron-ism about the Cain and Jaha relationship is, is how you, when you refer to like their martyrdom arms race. <laughs> like, <laughs> which of them? OTP attempted martyr. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is really like, this is really where it kicks off. Jaha wanting to go to section 17 and Kane stopping him. But one of the reasons why this episode is so dearly treasured by cabbie shippers is because Kane can't talk him out of it, but Abby can. Kane's realization that there are things that he God, And this, and now I'm just like, this is like it's Bellamy and Clark. Like Kane's realization that there are things that Abby can do that he cannot do. Him having the realization that's the same one that Clark has. About Bellamy being able to get through to people in a way that she can't. More, more of those like Kane Clark and Abby and Bellamy parallels. Abby and Bellamy have like the crowd charisma. But watching that beautiful, subtle moment where the council sort of gathered to bear witness as everyone files into section 17, you know, so Jaha can shake their hands. And it's one of the first times that we really see Kane and Abby framed by the camera as a pair. Yes, that's true. And it's the first time that we see softness in him towards her, like when he talks about that he left somebody there by the radio to listen to Raven because he understands that's important to her. It's his way of saying, I'm sorry, I was a dick about your daughter, you know, but it's also like, <laughs> you know, he's kind of extending her an olive branch. It's sort of his way of acknowledging that it's because of Abby that Jaha changed his mind, not because of Kane. Like there was no argument that Kane had in his arsenal that Jaha would hear, but it was Abby playing again on like, what would Wells think? Abby, the parent, playing the parent card. This is not what we do. This is not how we raised our children. How would you explain to your son that you allowed this to happen? She has that kind of gift that Bellamy has of persuasiveness that Clark and Kane I think, take longer to develop. It's a huge step forward in their relationship because we're seeing him beginning to see her through totally new eyes. And we're seeing, I think, kind of a first sort of gesture of camaraderie or of kindness or of something. That's based in the recognition that she's the reason that Jaha didn't end up dying in Section 17. And so it links their little three-person unit together in this new way. But yeah, but it's just... Jaha's just the worst. (laughs) Like He's just the worst. He just is. Always the
0: worst. (laughs) There are some people who will just never stop being the worst, and Jaha is one of them. And Jaha is one of them forever. Speaking of the worst... Shall we go back down and talk about Raven arriving and seeing Finn
1: again? Obviously, Finn is the worst in that sentence. Raven is the best always. Yes, Raven is the best in every... Oh my god, I just... And this is really like, these two episodes are just... I mean, like, when she's introduced in 102, she's, like, it's, it's we talked about, like, it's an amazing character introduction. But these two episodes are where we see her really come into her own and shine. And she brings something, like, when she crash lands, like, when she sort of moves from the arc storyline to the delinquent storyline, and we see her beginning to, like, assimilate among the kids, she's just so immediately integral to that storyline raven's a game changer you know when raven arrives
0: suddenly the vista of possibility of things that they can do open up because of what she is capable of what she's able to do mechanically but also just the way like the creativity of her mind you know that she can look at a broken radio and say like well this won't work as a radio but what's the goal we're going for what's another way of getting there What's the equipment I have? Okay, I have another plan. Like, and how quickly she's able to sort of synthesize all of those factors and come up with this like totally brilliant plan. You know, like we have rocket fuel and we have like, a transponder and all we need to do is like send a signal that people can see that indicates that there are people down here trying to get their attention. That's the kind of genius that Raven has that just changes everything. That just like opens up possibilities. Things kind of like ratchet up to a new level when she gets there in every possible way. And then she's just always just like, Raven's is just so delightful. And I love the scene when Clark finds her in the pod is another one of the scenes along with Octavia undressing in the pilot where you're just sort of like, well, of course Clark likes girls. Oh, yeah. Did you see her like staring like reverently like, oh, my God, like, (laughs) look at this amazing creature that I
1: found inside this pod that I just opened up. I was thinking as I was watching this. My first Clark-related ship in season one was totally Prince's mechanic.
0: Oh, absolutely. Long before I was
1: like, oh, Bellamy. I still hated Bellamy at this point the first time
0: through, you know, like their dynamic was getting more interesting. Like the Adam thing was kind of the first seed and and then 104, but I was still very much like, fuck everyone, no one's good enough for Clark. And then Raven gets down there and you're like, oh, now <laughs> this is who you should really be banging.
1: <laughs> before this show obviously makes her bisexuality, you know, textual in any way. Eliza and Lindsay have instantly such sensational chemistry. Well, and really, I guess I would say Lindsay has sensational chemistry with literally everyone. Yeah, I mean, that's like the real power. It's like she walks in and it's
0: like, you know, every interaction is like I mean, I think this is why watching this my Raven Lark feelings are off the charts. Oh, you know, yeah. It's like, princess mechanic, oh my God. And then like her first scene with Bellamy
1: is just oh my like, God. holy shit, like they have so much like intensity and chemistry there. I think one of the things that, that Raven does above and beyond the Clark and Finn thing is that she shakes up the relationship dynamics because she's so yes. not scared of Bellamy at all. Yeah. Like no one talks to Bellamy like Raven talks to Bellamy. Nope. Raven hits the ground. She's like, oh, you're that asshole. But then also, I think what's interesting about that is that, both in the way that she is just kind of like, "I'm fucking, I'm not scared of you," but also in the fact that she delivers game changing information. Yes,
0: yes. Like for the first time, they have
1: information about what's happening on
0: the arc. Yeah, that changes everything. You know, and like two huge things: number one, the calling is happening. Number two, Bellamy did not kill Jaha, which you can see. You know, when he tells her that, you can see his reaction. Like this changes. Everything he believed about himself and about his situation on the ground. You know, like, when he took that radio, it was just, it was a moment of sheer panic. This was them coming down, like, he thinks to kill him. You know, like, this is life or death. I really love the confrontation that he has with Octavia in the woods. Which is also like a really important moment for the Blake sibling relationship because, you know, because up until that moment, she doesn't know what he did to get there. You know, he's been carrying this burden, this secret, this whole time. No one knows. And you can tell, like, for Bellamy, this is a weight on his soul. Like, he's walking around thinking, I'm a murderer, I'm a murderer. That totally changes his self concept. He would do it again, but he also is deeply ashamed of it. You know, like I think he's deeply ashamed of knowing that he's someone who would do it again. So like in that confrontation, you can see the panic that he has, that the repercussions for what he did to try to save his sister are coming back for him. And this is always the fear. He spent his entire life being terrified of what could happen if he's found out. Of him and everyone he loves being killed because of Octavia and like this kind of like all happening again. But I really, really like that confrontation that, you know, he gives the sort of justifications to Octavia and she calls him on his bullshit. This is for you. And she's like, no, it's not. You know, she's like, this isn't on me. And he and he actually said I like I love to have him say, like, you're right. This was a choice I made. You know, like he owns that choice. He still is not to the point where he can accept the consequences of it. But at least in that moment, I think that's the first time when he kind of like stops and is like, okay, yes, this is mine. This is my burden. As far as he knows, the people on the Ark dying is still a theoretical problem that might be an issue in six months. But they're probably, you know, like he's not really thinking about it as a present thing. And he's in a total panic about them coming down. So, you know, I thought the way that that moment played out where Raven sort of arrives and delivers these two humongous bombs. Number one, like, you are not the person you thought you were. You didn't kill Jaha. And number two, that that impulsive decision you made that I think, you know, he thought wouldn't have any serious repercussions really beyond him avoiding being executed for murder when they come down suddenly means that 320 people are imminently going to die. And then with Clark coming in, Bellamy and Clark's relationship is a little bit it's like it's in flux, you know, they're like they're partners, but they just still don't really trust each other. But you can see that sort of building where like with this information, Clark immediately stops and says, like, do you know what this means? This means you're not a killer. You know, like I know you're not a murderer. I saw that. I know that that's who you are, who you are as a person who tries to save your sister. Again, she's, like, reaching in and sort of using that, that ability that Clark has to look at somebody and kind of, like, recognize, on, a, like, a very one-to-one basis, she can't do this with crowds the way that Bellamy can, but on a one-on-one basis, she can really look at someone and, and understand, here is who you are, here is who you want to be, I can give you this sort of thing. She can sort of look at Bellamy, and once again, I think she's, like, the only person who's ever really seen him in that way. You know, like, she's the only person who's ever been able to look at him and say, you're not the things that you had to do, the person you are is the person who tries to protect his sister. Like you said, like, that's all just because Raven arrived. Everything kind of rolls from there. And you can see this is planting the seeds for so much, you know, for the growth of Bellamy's character, for Clark's character, on a number of levels, not just in the love triangle. This sort of sets up what's going to culminate in 108 and Day Trip underneath the tree with Bellamy and Clark. She just, like, lights a fire under the storyline again.
1: Any scene or storyline that Raven is directly involved in Feels alive in a totally new way. Any character that she's paired with, any like quest that she's on, off the bat, she's one of the show's real breakout characters. She pulls you in in a way where you become extra invested in everything that's happening. And part of it is her spunky, sassy, sort of the lightness. Like, even under like really dire circumstances, she's quippy and she's lighthearted, you know, and she's sort of snarky and sassy. But just this overpowering competence and charisma that she has, the number of different things that it accomplishes, moving her from storyline arc to storyline earth is like incalculable. She drops this game-changing information. She completely upends the Finn and Clark relationship. She completes the trifecta of badass girl leaders with Clark and Octavia on the ground. Like the sort of the three of them kind of becoming like the sort of lady power trio. The same with her relationship with Abby on the Ark, where it makes the gut punch of the culling even more devastating because Raven brings this sense of hope and possibility. Raven makes you think that everything's going to be okay. The fact that Bellamy knows he's not a murderer means it's going to be okay now. The fact that Raven has told them in time for them to do something that they're going to kill people later today and that she's got an idea, you think, like, it's going to be okay. Like, the same way that... Right, because Raven just, like, made that pod operational in nine days. Raven can do anything. Yeah. And so I I think that in the same way that her and Abby's storyline in the previous episode Building the pod, her figuring out when the pressure regulator goes bad, that cheerworthy moment where she puts her spacesuit on where you're just like, Well, I'm gonna just like hope to God this fucking works, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like that, like she she does those things over and over again. And it makes you a just fall completely in love with her, but it also it serves this really interesting narrative function because you fundamentally believe that There is no problem that Raven Reyes cannot solve because we see how incredibly brilliant and resourceful she is. I think it's one of the things that makes the juxtaposition of us watching the sort of slow, sad, haunting death of everybody in Section 17 laid against this urgency and, you know, Raven running around, barking orders of everybody on the ground and like lighting the flares and that they don't know that they're 20 minutes too late. It sharpens that kind of emotional weight of those things in a really huge way that continues throughout 208 with Spacewalker, you know, where we're sort of seeing Finn's death through her eyes. Like the possibility that Raven will find a way to fix every problem means that the things that she's up against that she can't fix feel devastating in an additional way. Because you're like, no, the whole point was that I completely believed that you could fix this. What do you mean you're that much too late? They see the flares while Abby's sitting in that prison cell after the calling, just minutes too late.
0: That's what ultimately makes the love triangle thing just not work, yeah because Raven is so fantastic. it's just implausible that Finn would be like, "Eh, like she's so appealing so fast as an audience. you're just kind of like, "I don't get it, dude. It just makes him look so much worse, which is also why like I spent the whole time. You know, just being like, why are you both with him when you clearly, like,
1: appreciate each other so much more than he appreciates either of you? To me, like, that's the real takeaway of that love triangle. The inescapable conclusion of looking at the three of them together is, okay, but seriously, you are both so much too good for this guy, it's infuriating. (laughs) You know, like, it's like... Yeah, right, exactly. And and again, this is like, I'm 34, so some of this is just like... (laughs) Finn Collins is not a male heartthrob character that is targeted to my demographic, let's just say. right. So I don't find this sort of roguish bad boy appealing. And probably when I was 17, I didn't either. But I do think that it's a real flaw in the writing that the person who's the center of this love triangle is the weakest of those three points in a way where it's like, what the narrative needs us to believe For this to be plausible is that there is something about Finn that is so compelling that somebody as amazing as Raven would devote her whole self to him. And it makes more sense for her, given the sort of implications that we get of the backstory that they've always kind of been each other's Person, like, you know, that he's her first time, like, that he's her first love. That he's her only family, family. you know, like,
0: he's the only person that she really had. Whereas, like, with Clark, it just never made sense that it was a very deep relationship because, I mean, it made sense insofar as, like, you're the first cute boy who flirted with me when I hit the ground. yeah. You know, and, like, you were, like, friendly to me when, you know, a lot of other people were being assholes. Yeah, I guess
1: it's not so much, I guess, right now, in this moment... As that it's a gap that widens and widens as the show goes on up through 208 of how we're meant to believe that Clark and Finn have a love that is so strong and profound that Raven takes herself out of the equation. Not in that gross, like, I'm going to break up with you so you two can be together way, like in a way that's much more, I don't want to be with somebody who's only kind of in this half ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah but that she can see it, that everyone can see it, that Abby can see it, that everyone knows that Clark and Finn have this great true love and that for Clark, even as close as she is with Raven and even with her understanding of how Finn wronged Raven by how he treated her, that that love is still so overpowering that she can't put it behind her. Like It's a small to medium-sized plot hole right now and it gets i think worse and worse the more we're guided to believe that their relationship is a grand all-consuming love affair which is then belied by the fact that after she kills him two days later then she's kissing lexa so it's like on both ends How seriously are we meant to take Clark's love of Finn? Because what we see and what we're told about it aren't necessarily in alignment with what like the narrative needs it to do for plot purposes. Yeah, exactly.
0: And I think, you know, a a lot of the reason it gets worse is just because of the way it's written. And I mean, we'll talk about this more in upcoming episodes. I have a lot of Finn rants left. Do you? Do you uh, really? Before it's you? all over. Really? Yeah, I know. What? Shockingly, oh I know. I, I You thought, we probably felt like, oh, yeah, it'll never come up again. <laughs> so I think the writing is part of it. But I actually do think another facet of it is Thomas McDonald, not that this is like meant to be denigrating to him, but rather as a compliment to Lindsay Morgan and Liza Taylor is just like charisma wise like he's just kind of blown off the screen a little bit yeah 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 you know like and it's not because he's bad it's just because they are so good and so captivating and so appealing it's just one of those things where where it's just like you said it's just not persuasive you know and part of it is that it isn't supported by the writing but part of it is also just like the sheer, like, raw appeal of the performers on the screen. Totally, yeah.
1: It's a yeah. It's a combination of the fact that the two of them are so incredibly compelling, both as actors, you know, and as characters. And also, like we talked about earlier, that by this point, the show still hasn't fully decided how it's writing its men yet. Finn is the biggest
0: victim. Yeah. I think Bellamy kind of manages to weather that more, partly because of the the sort of story decisions they made for him And partly because just like, again, because like Bob Morley has such great charisma and presence on the screen. He's so compelling. He makes more of that character than is on the page in the early episodes, especially, and they kind of build on that. You know, so he manages to kind of like transcend their issues with writing men early on and come out the other side as a much more compelling character. And Finn just never does.
1: For Bellamy, I think what saves it is that Every relationship that we see of Finn that is important to him is sexual. That's a good point. And I think what saves it with Bellamy is Octavia. And the way that his relationship with Octavia shapes his relationship with the rest of the delinquents, with Charlotte, with the paternal dad Bellamy care and protectiveness that begins to become part of his leadership style as he moves away from being just kind of like a belligerent asshole with a gun in his pants. Well,
0: you know it makes sense, and we'll and we'll obviously we'll, like this is a conversation that will continue next time because we pick up with his sister's keeper. But it's the big brother Bellamy feelings, like that's what turned me around. Is with when I started like these are really laying that out. I was like, oh fuck, you like you're making me like this yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. You know, because like just all of these
1: sort of like feelings about big brother protectiveness. No, totally, totally. The thing that humanizes Bellamy that keeps him from falling into a cliched trap, even like right from the beginning, like even even in the pilot where you could argue that the writing is the weakest. The fact that he is not being 100% defined in relation to flirting with hot chicks, right off the bat gives him some nuance that Finn, I just, I feel like, who do we ever see of Finn's key relationship? He has some interactions with jasper with lincoln with murphy in season two like he gets moments with other characters but he is almost wholly defined by his position in the middle of this clark raven love triangle that for me never works that never works like you want it to so he is a male character who's completely defined as being like the dreamboat love interest that our two most compelling young heroines so far are torn apart by their affection for And I don't buy it. Well, and this also, like, there's to an even more extreme degree when you think about it, because the only relationships
0: that are really shown to be important or meaningful for Finn, I mean, he's like, first few episodes, he's like kind of friends with Jasper and Monty, and Octavia, like, he's around. He's, like, kind of part of that crew. But, like, after after this, I don't think that those really go anywhere. Like, he doesn't really interact with them much anymore. You know, and then, like, so much of the first few episodes, he's just, like, exposition machine. He's like, hello, I'm here to ask you pointed leading questions about your motivations so that you may exposit what is going on to the to the audience. You know, so you don't really get much sort of, like, a look into to Finn there. And, like, all of that is built around Clark and then Wells in service of Clark's story. So he doesn't really have any relationships that aren't just with Raven and Clark, so romantic relationships. And also, in these early episodes, he is constantly, you know, like fucking off into the woods to mess around in bunkers that he refuses to share with the rest of the group. So he doesn't even have that kind of like implicit commitment to a relationship with or affection for the other delinquents, that say, like, like Bellamy by episode four, you could reasonably say, given the sort of position that we're shown, the kind of, like, actual functional leadership he has, like, he is the one in charge of organizing the kids to build that wall. So he's not just sort of like, I'm going to give him whatever they want. You know, he's sort of, like, shifted. You know, that's the basis of how he got his power. But he sort of shifted to actually being, like, a leader who is leading things in order to accomplish stuff. And you get the feeling... If you ask Bellamy, if you like pointed around the camp, it was like, who's that kid? He could tell you. Like he would know the names of most of them. He would know who they were and what were they supposed to be doing. I don't get the feeling 90% of the time that Finn knows who anyone is. Finn knows who the named characters are, but he's just like pointing around the camp, he'd be like, Wah. So like Finn is, is defined by his relationships with Clark and Bellamy to like a really like deep degree, like to the point where it doesn't even seem like implicitly he has any other meaningful relationships.
1: Yeah, he is occasionally present in group scenes where he'll toss out like a line or two. I mean, I think if you subtract out the sex scene from 104 is there anything that Finn contributes that another character couldn't do just as well no and
0: that's always true that's always true I mean true. I think this is why I think this is why Finn feels like you never really know exactly who he's supposed to be you know he's the character who always delivers a line that somebody needs to say but you're right like it's never a line where it's like only Finn would notice that you know only Finn could p- make that point only Finn could say that it's like well we need somebody to do this thing today so- so Finn's going to do it.
1: I wonder what the writers thought. Like, I would love to ask them, what did they view as Finn's plot purpose? Because it truly, truly seems to me that he only exists as a love interest in season one. I think so. There's a
0: few moments where, like, for instance, in the finale, where, you know, he decides t- with Lincoln to use Bellamy's idea of bleeding the Reapers back. Yeah. But it's just, like, a
1: few little things like that. But, like, but again, like you said, like, that... like, the peace that... talks and things like that. Like, there's, like, a handful of... There's a handful, but they're kind
0: of one-off. You know, they're sort of like, we need this to happen, so this person is going to go do this
1: thing. And they're not specific to Finn. Like, that's, I think that's my problem with it. If you take a moment, like, when Clark Mercy kills Adam, and you think about all of the different things about who Clark is that go into making her the only person who could do that. You know, there's the fact that her mom is a doctor and she's comfortable around blood and death and pain and sickness in a way that another person wouldn't be and that she knows exactly where to stab him to like make it painless and there's the song that she sings that clearly has some kind of emotional component and there's how calm she is and there's her gentleness Only Clark Griffin could do this thing. In the same way where for, you know, for Bellamy, for Abby and Kane, for Jasper and Monty, like Raven on the bridge, only Raven could do that and would do that. You know, we have the characters who come to us fully realized, whose personalities are super distinct and clear. There are things that only they can do that were like, yes, this thing would not happen without Raven doing this or Kane doing this or Bellamy doing this. And I feel like the thing with Finn is that the moments where Finn is like driving the plot or is the most key to something significant happening are somebody else in reaction to him. Like it's not Finn's agency. Like even the spacewalker thing, which is like his sort of defining trait in the pilot, is then later revealed to us as being like really about. Raven, like really about somebody else, you know. So I just feel like I struggle to wrap my head around what are the plot elements that Finn, the person, drives forward. And I'm sort of unable to put my finger on any except cute, roguish boy love interest. And that just doesn't feel like enough. Yeah, I think something that's symptomatic of that.
0: Is that when I rewatched 104, I kept literally forgetting about Finn. Like, when he wasn't there. Yeah, until the sexing at the
1: end, he does nothing.
0: Yeah, well, like, there's, there's a moment, you know, during the hanging when he runs back in, like, from wherever the hell he was. Like, I don't know where he went, but he, like, wandered off somewhere and then he came back. And, like, I literally was just like, oh, right, Finn. Not like, oh, right, Finn, there he is. I don't know where he went. But, like, oh, right, Finn exists. Oh right, you're on this show, Thomas McDonald. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And I feel like that happens a lot with Finn. Yeah. You know, like he'll come back in, and I'll be like, oh right, you, I forgot about you because like everything that's happening has nothing to do with you. <laughs> well yeah,
1: it's like they've already run out of things for him to do in this story that aren't love interest related. Moping about Clark, basically. A identical but improved version of the Finn that we get in season one. Like Finn the pacifist, right? Like Finn the person who... Right.
0: Who has a really deep, like, philosophical ethical commitment to pacifism as the way to engage with the world. Right.
1: So then setting up a dynamic where Murphy as Bellamy's second and Finn as Clark's second are all four present in that showdown over what to do with Murphy. Giving Finn agency to like even if he was just there to back up Clark, but to be part of that happening, it's like they try later to find something for him to do that isn't be cute and flirty and they sort of arbitrarily land on pacifist. but even that and I won't go into this because this is the rant that I will give. We're saving it we Unity
0: day. We're saving that one. It is epic, but even that, you know, even even the
1: the peace talks thing is like framed in a way that makes it seem like it's really about Clark and it's jealousy of Bellamy. It's jealousy of Bellamy, which becomes his other salient trait, which I really don't like. How do you solve a
0: problem like Finn
1: Collins? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they ever figured that out. Do we get the song twice this week to make up for the fact that we didn't get one last week? <laughs> yes, and also to make up for the fact that we just like keep not. Stopping
0: ranting about Finn. I know,
1: (laughs) I know. I feel bad. We can't get past it. I'm trying to see what the writers think is there. Like I have my own personal opinions and I'm trying really hard to see it from the point of view of me as a writer, putting myself in the brain of those writers as writers and saying like, what is the role of this character in advancing the narrative? And I'm frustrated that I keep coming up short because like I want there to be an answer because it really does feel like by this point in the show, it's the one character that is still not even close to there yet when we've more or less begun to at least close in on everybody else.
0: I'm glad that you're on top of that attempt to objectively understand the <laughs> thing because I definitely
1: long ago
0: <laughs> surrendered myself To my sort of like gut level annoyance with him, which I will then back up with all the sort of analytical reasons
1: I can find (laughs) to justify it. We're on the same page, but my writer brain and its sort of fundamental compassion for other writers, and and <laughs> you know and and desire to be like, okay, what do you think was happening here? Like, what do you like? And not which, right. which sounds like so patronizing, but like but like trying to be like, okay, so in advancing the narrative that you've given us, what are these individual characters' roles? And I think one of the strengths of this show, with an ensemble as big as it has, is that. Everyone else is there already by episode four, and that's really something that's really something yeah
0: absolutely that's really something like there are other shows that t- it takes an entire season to get oh there. yeah, and, and I think everyone else by episode is four is there they're they're like clearly on. The sort of character and plot trajectory that they're going to be on until the end of the season, in ways that, like, it, you know, that when you go back and rewatch are crystal clear and well executed and effective, but also subtle and satisfying. Like, everyone else is,
1: is doing great. Yeah. Yeah. And Finn, I just, I, Finn, I'm just kind of like, what's the point of you? <laughs> <laughs> Part of why it is unignorable is because it's being set next to an ensemble that is already so well fleshed out. That's successfully juggling such a huge range of storylines where the stakes are so high and where there isn't a single other character who's only reduced to being a love interest. Like Finn's the only one who has that sort of particular failing, And it's frustrating because we already know five episodes in how much better the show's capable of doing. And so it just makes me sort of feel like I want to understand what you thought was being added to this narrative by the work this character's doing. I want to be on your side. I want to see it. I want to see what you see. And I'm just like... and I just just can't because the only thing I can see that he is
0: necessary for is the love triangle storyline, which winds up going way better than I expected it to when it began, but still is also just kind of like, is it really,
1: like, really necessary? I don't know. I would pose the question to everyone listening to the world sort of in general, what is truly and profoundly lost in this show if Clark and Finn's relationship never became romantic? That is a very good way of putting it. I think, yeah, that is the open question. Because right now it feels like nothing. It feels like nothing. And I want to circle back to this because I want to see if I feel differently about that in season Two. Like I wanna Yeah like going into 2A as we're working up into Spacewalker. It's way more plot. Like it's a huge part of the plot in season two, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so I just I just that is my question. That is my closing question for the world to consider. So we didn't talk about
0: Octavia really or Jasper Monty. I don't think Jasper Monty aren't in 105. But 104 so it's kind of funny, you know, because we, we speculated last time. We we're trying to figure out, like, it certainly feels like they were setting up a relationship between Octavia and Jasper. There's so and It feels much that way Jasper, really strongly. Yeah, in 104, you know, like, ending with Jasper feeling, you know, bad because he kind of did the honors for Monty with the wristband and then they fried Like the episode opens with Jasper and Octavia together and Octavia trying to sort of like help Jasper overcome his fear of going outside the wall. And then at the end with Jasper feeling bad for having failed and Octavia going over and saying bravery is always rewarded and then kissing him. Like I remember watching the first time and being like, that's going to be a ship. Like that's going to be a relationship uh that's going somewhere. And it's so funny because then like 105, you know, Octavia goes in the woods and she has that confrontation with Bellamy and then immediately after you know like hilariously falls down a hill in a sequence that is just sort of like what what I don't know how you managed to do that Octavia like you're usually not that unbelievably clumsy and then Lincoln shows up right you know and we didn't know where that's going so so I just I sort of wonder if they had intended Jasper and Octavia to be romantic and then change their mind at some point
1: yeah it feels to me like they changed horses midstream between episodes four and five Like they broke the first four episodes leading into this Jasper Octavia arc, and maybe they didn't know where the Lincoln thing was going to go sort of until they got there. With the first season, I don't really have a sense of the way I know with like the later seasons of how far out they were writing things before they were airing, because I think it didn't switch to mid season until... Season three. So it's possible that they were like writing and filming concurrently. So I don't know if they were in a position to be sort of like modifying based on like, did Ricky and Marie have outrageous chemistry or did they decide, oh, we want to integrate the grounder character into the Sky People and have somebody who's sort of like a bridge between both? Like, I don't know. But it feels to me like if you never watched anything after episode 105, the understanding that you'd have of their relationship is. Okay, so she says, like, you know, like, bravery is always rewarded. And then she's about to get kidnapped by this guy. So you're like, oh, okay. So Jasper's going to rescue Octavia right. from, from this menacing yeah. villain character and, like, win her love. Because when she's attacked by this sea monster, you know, and Monty makes the, like, like next time, rescue the girl. Like, you know, like, there's laying this groundwork for the idea that Octavia is helping Jasper become more brave in a storyline that's going to culminate at some point in Jasper rescuing Octavia from something at great personal cost to himself that's going to obviously turn romantic. Like that's what those story beats signify. And so I like the fact that it doesn't go to that cliched the hot babe falls in love with the nerd and like shows him that he's more than being a nerd kind of big bang theory sort of like <laughs> <click> <laughs> level of plot, right. you know. I like that the show doesn't go that direction, but like the problem with it, the reason it feels inconsistent like they just change their minds is because the Jasper Octavia friendship doesn't become such a big runner throughout the whole show that it feels like a sort of kindred spirit friendship is the thing that they were planting. like they have moments throughout yeah,
0: no they they're still like they come back to their friendship a number of times, yeah, but
1: the but they're separated for all of season two, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So then it's sort of moot. They have that really lovely moment in Mount Weather in season three with a painting mm-hmm. that I really like. And then, you know, the like that's sort of it, you know, and because Octavia's got her own story and Jasper's got his own story. You know, and I, and I like that scene in season three because it feels like maybe it's trying to sort of call back to like the time when the two of them were, like, really close. Like, not really a retcon, but sort of like a reminder, like, remember when these two were sort of each other's person? Jasper's relationships this far in the show are with Monty and Octavia. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think the seeds that they're planting, with all of the Jasper and Octavia scenes in
0: 104, I think they do set up an arc for Jasper that continues, which is that... He has to kind of like learn to be brave and learn to overcome his fear, which we do see for Jasper over the course of season one. You know, he has to kind of like conquer his fear of grounders and of leaving the camp to go out when they meet Anya and then also to go out to blow up the bomb on the bridge. So it does kind of like move Jasper from where he is in 104 to where he's going to be by the end of the season and then going into season two when he kind of becomes the new leader in Mount Weather. But it does feel like the way that they were setting that up in 104 for Octavia doesn't go like Octavia sort of veers off into a totally different yeah. character arc after 104. Like Jasper stays on it, but Octavia is kind of taken out. And then Octavia goes on like this totally new thing. So I think that's maybe why that scene winds up in retrospect feeling a little bit anomalous or a little bit sort of like, well, that felt like it was going to go somewhere that it just... Then it does not go. Yeah. And I, and I do, I sort of wonder, you know, like we'll never know. You, you wonder when they made that decision and why. I think possibly it has to do also with Bellamy because they needed the sort of like rescue story with Octavia to be about the Blake siblings rather than about Octavia and someone else. Because the next episode about searching for Octavia and saving her is the pivotal episode for Bellamy's character in terms of establishing, you know, like we get flashbacks. This is where we kind of come to understand Bellamy really more thoroughly as a person. This is where we sort of see the like lengths he's willing to go to to protect both Octavia and all of the other delinquents when they capture Lincoln, And that leads us to 208. So like having Bellamy be the key person in that is really crucial. So I think, you know, part of it is just like you couldn't have this story be Jasper going and being Octavia's hero because they need
1: that to be part of Bellamy's arc. I think that they had this idea of Oh, let's sort of pair these two together. And then they reached a point where they sort of realized if we push this relationship between these two any further, then it becomes like if it becomes textually romantic in a way that's more than just her giving him a cute little cheek kiss then does it close off more story ground than it opens? And so I think it was very, very smart. I mean, not just because then it gives us Linktavia, but for the direction that their characters go, like it was smart and necessary, but it does feel like it's the break between five and six where a concrete decision was made where they changed their minds. Okay, well, uh, thank
0: you everyone for tuning in again. So, yeah, we will talk at you again soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.